All right. So um, in your bulletins are the readings, okay, uh, for those of you who didn't bring your Bibles. This next reading is very long, okay, so I want you just to relax. Don't feel anxious that it's going on and on and on and on. So what I'm going to be reading for you is the entire speech that Stephen gives before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin who's going to execute him. All right. Uh, this is, what, Acts chapter 7? Is that what that is? Yeah, so it's the whole chapter. Hear the word of God. And the priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land where you are now living. Yet he did not give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our father on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 people all in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man 
and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame, a fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses of whom the Israelites, uh, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked, uncircumcised people. I'm sorry, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard him, uh, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would be present uh, with us this morning. We thank you for um, this report of Stephen's speech. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that um, your truth would come to us this morning. Amen. Well, that was a pretty long uh, scripture uh, reading this morning. It may be a new record here uh, at HVPC, but I thought that we better read through the whole speech that uh, Stephen gave uh, before the Sanhedrin because this is the speech that gets him killed. Just to remind you of where we are, we are continuing our series of sermons through the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles is actually the second part of the Gospel of Luke, and it offers uh, a well-researched history uh, of the church in the first years after the resurrection of Jesus. The day of Pentecost, the, the birthday of the church, fell 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit descends upon 120 disciples who were uh, gathered in an upper room in uh, Jerusalem, and after that happens, all the craziness begins. The disciples flood out into the streets, and they begin to preach and to testify about Jesus, and people from all over the world hear uh, the news about Jesus in their own language. Peter stands up before a huge crowd and he delivers what is the first recorded sermon in the history of the church and 3,000 people are converted that day. The church begins to grow rapidly, so fast in fact that the apostles have trouble keeping up with all of the work of running a growing church and so the church selects and the apostles ordain deacons to take over some of the work. And Stephen is one of these first deacons. While the primary role of the deacons was to take care of the widows in the church, Stephen also was a powerful preacher, and he is the first Christian, aside from the apostles, reported to have performed miracles in the name of Jesus. And soon Stephen attracts the attention of the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the temple, and they arrest Stephen and they bring him before the council to answer charges. As it turns out, the charges are trumped up. They're blatant misrepresentations of what Stephen was actually saying. And so now this man stands before this Jewish council and the chief priest asks Stephen what he has to say in his defense. And what Stephen said, or at least a portion of what he said that was remembered by the people who were there and is recorded for us in Acts, that was our reading this morning from Acts chapter 7. Probably the most important truth Stephen 
delivers in this speech, and I'm going to give it to you right up front before I lull you off to sleep, probably the most important truth delivered by Stephen in this is that all of us and the entire universe that we live in, all of these things were created out of nothing by God, and God is not part of the universe. Now let me say that again. Because not only is this the most important truth delivered by Stephen, it is also the foundational truth of biblical religion, what distinguishes biblical religion from pagans. Here it is. All of us and everything in the universe that we see around us were created out of nothing by God who is not himself part of the universe. Now that sounds like a truth that might be preached out of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Maybe you're thinking that you don't recall Stephen saying anything about creation. But if you stick with me for a bit, I'll draw the connection for you. Now I've said it a few times from this pulpit, and I've become more convinced of this as time goes by, that the doctrine of creation presented to us in the first two chapters of Genesis is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith and Christian worldview. Over the past 150 years, Christians have gotten distracted by arguments about dinosaurs and evolution and the length of days of creation. And many well-meaning Christians have walked away from the first two chapters of Genesis or consigned it to the trash heap of ancient myths that we've outgrown as scientific people. And that's a mistake. The ancient pagans, of course, well, the modern pagans too, have their accounts of how the world came to be. But if you read those accounts, if you read the ancient Greek account in the Theogony, if you read the ancient Babylonian account in the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you read the ancient Egyptian account in the Book of the Dead, you realize that Genesis is something totally different. In the ancient pagan accounts, the world that we live in comes to be out of struggle between the gods. And the world that we lived in, we live in is composed of the bodies of those gods. In the Greek account, for example, out of chaos emerges the bodies of uh, the goddess Gaia, who is the earth, and Uranus, who is the sky. And then those two get together and they copulate and there are children born and Uranus doesn't like the children so he imprisons them in Tartarus and then Gaia the mother is unhappy about this so she seeks revenge by getting one of the children to castrate the father Uranus. It's a beautiful story and it just goes downhill from there. The pagan Greek story of how the world came to be is a bloody account of rape and murder. And that's not the worst of it. And that's not the only thing which makes it different from biblical religion. After all is said and done. And by the way, the the myths told by the Babylonians and by the Egyptians are not that different. After all is said and done... What we are left with is a creation that is nothing more than body parts of God's. That means there is no essential difference between the God's and the universe that we inhabit. The earth is a God, the sky is a God, the ocean's a God. That's the pagan view. 
And if you study world religions, you will discover this is the case in all religions with the exception of three. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All three religions which depend upon Genesis for their understanding of the creation. So what does the biblical account tell us that's different? In the biblical account, God... And the universe that God creates are entirely separate. They're entirely distinct. They're different kinds of substance. The God of the Bible is not the sky. He's not the earth. He's not the water. The God of the Bible exists externally, independently of creation. He was there before there was a world. If the world disappears, God will still be. The world is not his body. God and the world are entirely different orders of being. God is outside of space and time. The world is bound by space and time. God is entirely free. The world is completely determined by natural causality. For pagans, the creator and the creature are essentially the same. The gods are just super-duper versions of the stuff that we see around us, people and animals and trees and volcanoes. The gods are different from ordinary creatures only in degree, not in kind. But in biblical religion, the distinction between creator and creature is absolute. God is absolutely other. He is absolutely distinct from his creation. Well, if there's one place in creation where the substance of God might enter the substance of the world, and here I need to speak very circumspectly and admit that I don't have a clear answer. If there is one place where the substance of God might enter the substance of the world, it would be in the breath of life that God breathed into Adam. The human soul is the most godlike part of the created universe, which is the reason why biblical religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have always defended human life, even life in the womb. But even with the human soul, we must be extremely cautious and recognize that there is an infinite gap between the finite human soul and infinite God. Foundational to biblical religion is the understanding that God is entirely other, that God is entirely distinct from and separate from his creation. The way we say this philosophically is that pagans are monists and the Bible is dualist. The word monist comes from the Greek word for one. Monists believe that all things are at bottom one, one kind of something, one kind of substance. And, by the way, this is something that pagans share in common with contemporary materialist physicists and cosmologists. Contemporary materialist view of the natural sciences is that all things, by which we mean the total content of the universe, that all things are made of matter and energy, and that matter and energy can be converted into each other. In other words, there is only one kind of substance. So... They are monists. The biblical worldview, however, is dualist. The biblical worldview says that there are two kinds of things. There's the creator, whatever that is or however he is, and there's the creation, which we know through our senses. And there's no way to convert the one into the other. There's an absolute distinction between the substance of God and the substance of creation. 
Now, I know that sounds very abstract and philosophical. But the difference between the pagan view and the biblical view of the relationship between God and the world has consequences in our faith life and in our worship. The difference between being a monist or a dualist has a consequence in our religion. On the pagan view, the monist view, the gods are essentially the same as us and the world that we inhabit. The gods are super-duper versions of humans or animals or trees or volcanoes. And when the gods are like that, then worship becomes a quid pro quo. We give things to the gods, and they give things to us in return. As Plato says, well, actually, as Plato has Socrates say in the dialogue Euthyphro, religion is the art of doing business with the gods. There are certain things that we need and want from the gods. And there are certain things that the gods need and want from us. And religion becomes this business transaction between humans and gods so that everyone gets what they need. If the gods are essentially no different from the world that we inhabit, then it follows that the gods need the things that we have to offer. Food, wine, sexual favors... Those are all things that the pagans offer to their gods. And that makes sense if you're a monist. But things are different if you are a dualist. If you believe that you and your creator are actually different orders of being, different kinds of substance. Listen to Psalm 50. This is God speaking through the prophet David. God who is not like anything in the universe. This is, uh, I'm going to read it from the King James Version because it sounds better. This is Psalm 50, verse 7 through 13. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually offered before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls in the mountains, and the wild beasts in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Now the point here is that the Israelites might be keeping the altars full of sacrifices, full of bulls and goats, but God doesn't really care because God doesn't need us to feed him. The pagan gods need to be fed. Moloch, one of the gods mentioned in our readings this morning, had to be fed live babies, human babies. But unlike the ridiculous pagan gods who were of the same substance as the world and not separate from it, Yahweh doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing in his creation that he requires. And even if he did need something from creation, it's all his anyway. And so how can we give it to him? The world is mine and the fullness thereof. That's what God says. What can we bring God that he needs? What can we offer God that he doesn't already own? The absolute distinction between the creator and the creation destroys 
quid pro quo worship. It destroys you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back religion. All of us need things from God. And if you think like a pagan, you think you can get what you need from God by offering him some stuff that he needs. Do we really? One second. Oh God, if you will bless me financially, I will start tithing. Oh God, if you restore my marriage, I will start going to church. Oh God, if you cure this disease, I will read my Bible every day. That's paganism. Do we really think that God needs stuff from us? Do we really think that God is so pathetic, so dependent that he would respond to these kinds of offers? God does not need us. Now, maybe that's unpleasant to hear, but God does not need us. And everything in the universe, not to mention everything in our bank accounts and every day of our lives and everything in the entire universe, he already made and he owns it. So what kind of sick joke is it to say to the person who made all of this stuff, Hey, mister, I'll give you some of the stuff that you already own if you give me some more stuff that I need. I mean, what kind of chump do we think God is? Think of this analogy. You're living in Philadelphia, 1912. You're working for John Wanamaker at his big store downtown. You want a favor from the boss. You want to knock off early this evening so that you can take your girl out to the movies. And so you swing by the men's department and you shoplift a couple of ties. And then you walk to Mr. Wanamaker's door And you march in and you say, hey boss, how about I give you these ties and you let me off work early today? How silly is that? And if it's silly to bargain with Mr. Wanamaker using ties that you stole from him, how much sillier is it to bargain with Almighty God, the creator of the universe, who doesn't need anything that's in the universe? With the exception of the three religions based on the book of Genesis, every other religion has indulged in precisely that kind of foolishness. And that's inevitable. Because if you have a monistic view of the world, then it makes sense that you negotiate with the gods. Problems arise when people who have been called to follow Yahweh forget who he is. And start treating him like a third-rate pagan God. When that happens, God gets a little upset. Listen to what God says in the penultimate verse of Psalm 50. God says, Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you to pieces. (laughs) Nice, right? And if you don't like a God who threatens to tear pagans to pieces, well, maybe you can find a pagan religion that's more to your taste. But Yahweh has no patience for this kind of pagan nonsense. The problem arises when people who are called to worship Yahweh begin to worship him in a way that you would worship a pagan God. That's what's going on in Stephen's day. It's what goes on persistently in the world today. The conclusion of Stephen's 
summary history of Jewish religious life just before he goes nuclear on the council and begins to call them stiff-necked and uncircumcised, his conclusion is this quotation from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things, says the Lord? The guardians of the temple, of course, are bent out of shape because they interpret Stephen's preaching as a threat to the temple, to their lovely temple, to their precious temple. They think Stephen and Jesus are threatening to tear it down. Of course, that's going to happen not too long. It'll be the Romans who tear it down in the year 70 A.D. But the attachment of the Sanhedrin to the temple is idolatrous. They're so focused on the building that they lose sight of the God who cannot be contained by buildings. The God who cannot be contained by the Milky Way. The God who is not of the same substance as this world. Yes, folks, this world is not all that there is, which is why we need more than just science to be able to make right choices. Every single thing that exists exists only because God spoke a few words. And so when we focus on those things that our eyes can linger over, that our hands can caress, if we focus on those things and make them the object of our adoration, then we're nothing more than pagans. Of course, the Sanhedrin thought they were doing God a favor by maintaining the temple, by ensuring the daily sacrifices, but God doesn't need those things, and God is not in our debt. So let me talk to you a little bit about why biblical religion is different. The Bible teaches us that God gives to us without getting anything in return. The Bible teaches us that an authentic relationship with the living God is a father-child relationship. It's not a business relationship where we scratch God's back and he scratches ours. The Bible teaches us that we have nothing to offer God. Now that might be hard to hear, but it's true. Martin Luther put it this way. Martin Luther said that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes salvation necessary. We've got nothing to offer, but God gives us everything anyway. Biblical religion is not an exchange between us and God. It's not a business deal. Biblical religion is the mysterious reality that we are God's creation, that we're entirely dependent upon Him, unable to do anything for Him, uh, for him giving Him nothing except our rebellion and sin. And yet God in His mercy and in His love gives us everything. He gives us life and He gives us new life. The mystery of the gospel is that God forgives our sins... God gives us the faith to trust in Him. God sends us the Holy Spirit to regenerate our dead hearts. God effects our sanctification over the course of time and prepares us for glory. And one day God will take us to be with Himself and we'll live with Him forever in New Jerusalem. And what did we do to receive all of those gifts? How much did we pay? Nothing. 
Something in the human heart rebels against that kind of deal. Because everything else in life tells us that we don't get something for nothing. Because no one wants to be indebted to someone that way. Not even to God. Pagan religions can be very demanding and strenuous. Sacrificing your baby to Moloch, for example. I mean, if you do that, then don't you feel like the God really owes you? I gave up all this for you, God. You really owe me. That's the heart and the logic of paganism. But biblical religion tells us that God doesn't owe us anything. And yet he gives us everything. So how about you? Do you see yourself and this world, this beautiful world, as made by God and as 100% dependent upon God for every second of its existence? Or do you think of yourself as independent and self-made and self-subsisting? Do you recognize God doesn't owe you anything? but has offered you everything? Or do you think that God does owe you something because of all the good things you've done for Him? In the Gospel, we have this offer of a relationship with the Creator of the universe, which should just blow your mind. The consequences of this relationship are huge. Good life now, eternal life to come. But are you willing to receive that as a gift? Because to receive that as a gift, you have to have no faith in yourself and you have to have all your faith in God. That's what's required. And let me make this clear. Your faith is not a payment for what you receive from God. Your faith is the conduit by which you receive those gifts. One of the things that blocks that conduit is a misplaced trust in ourselves. If we're trusting ourselves or our efforts or our goodness or our wisdom or our good intentions, if we're trusting ourselves, then we're not trusting God. And, and then we miss out. And all that's left is, you know, some kind of pagan imitation of what God wants to offer us. So I want to encourage you this morning to stretch your minds a bit. And to listen to the scriptures and this grand narrative of the life of Israel and see if you cannot imagine God as being totally beyond all of these things, beyond everything that we can see. And I want you in that to hear his invitation to come to him and to be his child and let him be your father and to receive his Holy Spirit. That's his desire for us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we thank you um, for the testimony of Brother Stephen. We pray that you would seal to our hearts the truths of your scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. song this morning is The Blessing. And I invite you to sing. The Lord bless you. And keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you, and give peace. Sing that again. The Lord bless.
This morning, we're here every Sunday. Come back next Sunday. Bring somebody with you. Uh, we have uh, uh, the lounge set up as an overflow room with the uh, projection of the service in there and the sound in there. Uh, for those of you who don't want to be uh, in in this sanctuary, obviously we're online uh, every week. Um, oh, you just received the blessing already. You sang it to yourselves. But let me uh, let me bless you again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>